Here in Orlando, Florida, O-Town Compost is leading the composting revolution, recycling organic waste into a nutrient-rich resource. Join Charlie Pioli, founder of O-Town Compost, as we hear from the nation's leading voices behind the grassroots community composting movement. Welcome to the Community Composting Podcast. Please rate and review on whichever podcast platform you're listening to. If you feel like this is good content and you're learning a lot about compost. Hi, welcome to episode number 41 of the Community Composting Podcast. Here today, I have a special guest local to me in Orlando, Andrew with Fruit Farms. He's actually one of our processors for O-Town Compost uh, on his uh, his his acreage out there in Christmas, Florida. He, uh, Andrew, if you could just talk a little bit about your property and, you know, what you're doing um, and how you came to be receiving food waste from O-Town Compost. Perfect. Yeah. So uh, my family started uh, farming in 1985 and bought a large uh, commercial property. So we, uh, we did like smaller commercial um, properties before and then um, wanted to do a larger scale nursery. So we bought a big piece of ag land. So, so my grandfather and my uncle bought that in 1999. So transitioned from little commercial nurseries into kind of a full scale farm um, from you know a few acres to over a hundred acres. Um, and their goal at first was to plant hardwoods, oak trees, and that sort of thing. And then uh, the deer out here destroyed a lot of that stuff and they transitioned to palm trees. So uh, since the, around the early 2000s, uh, they sold palm trees. Uh, I came out a few years ago on the palm tree side of things. Um, and my interest really lies in agroforestry systems and centropic uh, systems that you grow more edible plants. And so I wanted to do more with that. Um, so my uncle and I started growing edible plants and started a nursery. Um, we dug some ag ponds and developed a plan. And part of that plan was to, you know, divert some food waste. Uh, at that point, we met Charlie and uh, we're able to work with O-Town so that we can use some of our property uh, to process uh, the food scraps and make compost that we both use on site um, for our trees and eventually possibly could sell to other farmers and whatnot as well. Yeah, I think it was uh, a year before we started bringing food scraps to your your farm that, you know, you invited me to come out and just to talk and explore the partnership. And, you know, at the time I was thinking to myself, like, this would be the perfect composting site, very remote, right at the county border. Um, your neighbors are cows who aren't going to put up a fuss. And, you know, they're, they're, it's perfect piece of land. But I was thinking to myself, it's about 45 minute drive from our warehouse, which um, I think our limit is like, we don't want to drive more than an hour to drop off food waste, which is very hard because there's not really that processing infrastructure here in Central Florida. So, you know, it, it, it took us a year to really be like, it took us a year and then also our current composting site was kind of like 
uh, falling by the wayside, becoming really inconsistent. And one thing I loved about you and still do is you're super responsive and consistent. You know, you let me know if there's an issue um, or, you know, you just let like I, I make sure to ask the questions to kind of understand how the process is going. It's not like the old composting side I was taking it to, we would uh, dump our load of food scraps and I couldn't even be sure if the guy there was going to cover it with wood chips because a couple times I came back a few days later and the same load was just sitting there on top of a pile of wood chips uncovered. And I'm like, wow, this is, you know, pretty irresponsible. So, um, that I, I also want to just tell people about like how uh kind of our relationship started so you know you I met your you and your uncle you guys were clearly interested in composting and I recommended you know the best I could like about ASP um and then when when we needed a site uh we were actually arranging for like our food waste to be like a dump truck uh, driver was coming to our warehouse. We were loading them up very sketchy because all we had was a forklift and our like 64, 32 gallon totes. And I'm so glad OSHA didn't come by because they would have seen me going up on a pallet on the forklift with the totes, dumping it into the back of the dump truck. And um you know, just like very sketchy. And then, yeah, we were making trips. The dump truck was making trips out to your farm uh, once a week. But now we've kind of, we're a lot more confident in our vehicle and uh, we're making the trips uh, and we're splitting, you know, our, but between you and our other processing site, Everoak, uh, another farm in Central Florida, you know, it's kind of like, out of a two weeks out of a month go to fruit and and you Andrew and two weeks out of the month go to Mike with Everoak so it, it's really been helpful because collection and processing are two complete different businesses as I always say on this podcast and it kind of helps to outsource that and we're more than happy to like buy back the compost uh, from you and we have just so we can kind of distribute it or sell it to our subscribers but I really you know want to support you if you decide to um, start selling the soil amendment different blends and stuff have you kind of thought more about what that business model looks like a little bit so honestly on our end uh, a majority of uh, the current production is going into our own trees and obviously since the site's so large we have plenty of uh, soil amendments we could use uh, florida is obviously known for having sandy very nutritionally lacking soils yeah um, so so we we do have uh, plenty of uses for it um so i haven't looked completely into all of that i have looked into it a little bit and want to research and you know learn more about that and figure out making blends and whatnot uh, but right now our, our focus has really been utilizing it for our own trees get them to grow up so that i can um 
uh, we want to do agritourism. So we want to bring people out to the farm and show them how to compost, how to grow their own food and all that kind of stuff. And so the more that we can have on the property as a demonstration, the easier it is for me, especially like you said, we're, we're not far from anything completely, but we're also not super close. Um, so it's kind of a destination. If someone's not coming out here, it's not like they're going to just happen to drive by our farm. Uh, yeah. They definitely have to intend to come here, to come here. Um, so that's the, the big thing for us is trying to get people to, to come to the property and learn more about everything. And so I can teach them a lot better. Uh, you know, like I said, if I have some of my own trees growing and show a, a forest of fruit trees and show, okay, this is how you can enter crop and add legumes, add nitrogen to the soil so you don't have to, you know, buy uh, chemical fertilizers and teaching them how to do things more sustainably uh, and without adding inputs that could potentially harm the environment. And, and compost is obviously a big part of that, doing soil amendments that are natural and organic instead of adding a bunch of chemical fertilizers and applying too much nitrogen and that running off into the water and that sort of thing. Um, you can just apply natural fertilizers. And so uh, that's the big thing we're working on is trying to teach people that and get people to come out to the farm. Okay. And how many, uh, like, you know, when, what are your strategies to kind of get people out to the farm? Because I think there's a lot of great uh, education, uh, educational farms around Central Florida. And if I was, you know, aspiring farmer or composter, I, I would definitely schedule a trip to see what, you know, you're doing. But I guess it's, it's kind of like advertising and marketing. Uh, have you kind of thought more about that? A little bit. So I uh, actually went to school for marketing. That's what I expected to do with my life. <laughs> I went to the University of Florida, got a degree in marketing, and then uh, promptly did not ever use that. Uh, started a board game and comic book company, and then started this, and I worked with the palm tree staff. So I didn't really do anything in the realm of, except, you know, marketing my own products. Um, but so the, the big thing, uh, I guess, is, is I want to try to market um, and there's only so much I can do. So one of the things we've looked at a little bit more is doing sort of like a co-op where we've talked about potentially leasing a few acres of land to various other farms um, so that we can get more uh, businesses out here and uh, show people other stuff. Uh, we also worked with um, a commercial beekeeper. So we have uh, like five beehives right now, but um, they're getting us 15 more. So we're going to have 20 beehives and they're putting probably at least 150 hives out on our property as well. So that gives us um, a lot more uh, bees and stuff to show people if we want to teach people about beekeeping, which is one of the things that we do and wanted to teach um, and we can do some paid events teaching people on how to do that um, and can utilize this commercial partner to show scaling the business from commer uh, commercial beekeepers to like, you know, more like residential kind of small beekeepers like us, like backyard beekeepers versus the commercial side and how you could go from our scale to, to their scale, essentially. Um, and so that was something that I think is interesting and potentially really good. Uh, possibility for us so they're supposed to bring some beehives out the next week or two um, and I think that and working with some other farms like I said uh, would probably 
help a lot in the marketing way of bringing what about um like your community out there in east orange county in the christmas bithlo chuliota area um do you think there's any potential to because there's farmers galore out there yeah there's any potential to kind of you know some of what you're doing which is more sustainable to rub off on them yeah, we definitely wanted to do that and teach uh, some of the other farms around here how we do some of the things we're working on. Uh, we've also, because I, I sell the fruit trees for the nursery, I've, I've talked and met a lot of the other farmers around here that want to grow their own food and I'm trying to teach them the ways we do it um, to avoid using chemical inputs and whatnot. Um, but I, I think the big thing that I wanted to work on for a while is making it where uh, East Orange County is a destination and particularly our farm um, and then using that to uh, to help other farms as well. So if we had a farm store and we sold our own products, but we had uh, other farms, uh, like you said, with uh, the, the processing and uh, collections being two different businesses, it's too much for us to do everything. Um, but I could sell everything in theory if I partner with other farms that so say they, the farm across the street sells eggs, I can sell their eggs on our property if we're drawing people in. And then they'll also have an incentive to draw people into our farm. Um, so then if I can combine the marketing outreach of several local farms together, I think we can do a lot better um, as a community than I, I could individually. Um, so a lot of my goals are in partnerships and working with other people to scale the business. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I'll kind of back to the, the whole composting process that you do. I know we just got an opportunity that we would, you know, have to uh, partner with you, but we just got contacted by a waste broker this last week about 30 pallets of of meat hamburger patties that's still packaged and that's equivalent to like 50,000 pounds you know it's no small amount so um, several casts yeah we were just thinking how are we going to do this you know both me and you wanted to keep it out of the landfill and we we're ready to dedicate you know, all our, our effort to depackage, it'd probably take like 15 hours if both of us were doing it. But at the same time, you made a good point. Like you have, you have chickens, you have beehives, you're in an area that has frequent bear and coyote sightings. You know, you don't want to uh, attract that. So we unfortunately had to tell the broker, not this time, but keep us in mind for you know, future opportunities like this, pallets of vegetables would have been a lot easier. Yeah. Um, pallets of vegetables, we definitely could have done. The, the meat definitely added uh, some logistic complications that uh, concern me. Like you said, we have had bear sightings semi close to our farm. I don't have any electric fences. Uh, so you're supposed to have electric fences about around beehives if there's bears. We haven't ever seen bears on our property but it's like a few miles down the road and with that much uh meat uh bears sense of smell is incredibly high um so i was semi weary of that and then uh since we are a little out there it's not as easy to get arborist tree mulch as uh some other thing 
people like when I, I had a house by UCF and it, I could get ship jobs, I, I would post it and the next day I would have it. Uh, it's not so easy when, when you're a little out there, unless they're doing work in this area, they don't want to come out here normally. So I found one company that I developed a relationship that comes out here, but uh, I haven't had as much success getting other companies on board. And so with that quantity, uh, like I, I have this massive loader, it takes like four steps to get in it. And it weighs less than what the meat would have weighed. Um, yeah. So it's a pretty substantial amount. So when you're considering 30 pallets worth of something, um, it's a little more complications of, and yeah, so uh, we had talked about this. Like the, you don't have enough wood chips either. Yeah, like to, to cover, cover it properly. Out. Yeah. yeah. So, so my fear was if we didn't cover it properly, uh, it could be environmentally unconscious as well. Uh, yeah. The, the other thing is anything like that that's high in nitrogen can, you know, obviously pollute water if you don't manage it right. Um, so that was something I wanted to research and do more. So that's definitely like on the commercial scale. So we're, we're not quite there yet. Um, we're doing this more like back, semi backyard composters that happen to have a giant machine. Um, <laughs> but but we're, we're still not to the, to the point where we're a commercial collection facility or anything. So once we get to that point, I think once we understand the processes more, we could probably do stuff like that. Um, but for this particular time, Charlie and I decided that that would probably be too much. Um, yeah, I, just, I wanted to, to bring it up because it was an interesting challenge that, you know, it's totally new to me as well at O-Town Compost. So I feel like um, I know that, for example, Fertile Earth, uh, Lynette down in Miami, she frequently gets pallets of stuff and it's usually vegetables. And she said she's never had to deal with 30 pallets of meat before because I talked to her like, how yeah. do I manage this? But I think this is something that uh, all composters should kind of like wrap their head around um, because at some point, an industrial plant, a grocery store, you know, food goes bad in this country so often and it's either going to go to the landfill or you, um, they'll, they'll ask a composter, you know, hopefully, and you got to like, be able to quote them a similar price to what it would cost them to just bring it to the landfill. So that just wanted to bring up that challenge because it's so unique. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think it's important. I'm sure there there's uh, several more opportunities like that that they never even ask composters about. Um, but if we can figure out and solve some of these problems, I think at some point, we could get those people to realize when they do have that much meat or food scraps or anything that they can divert it instead of sending it to the landfill and educating them on what exactly we can take. Um, like we yeah. said, I mean, the, the big problem and fear for me was that we weren't, uh, I, we had never dealt with that challenge before. So it was something that was completely new and I didn't want to do anything that could potentially be environmentally unconscious or um, make, something that's super high in nitrogen and then that you know go into our like i said we did dig ag pond so we do have a lot of water i didn't want anything to um, go into there um yeah. but i think that eventually uh once we've researched that a bit more the next time an opportunity like that comes up we might be able to handle it and maybe it won't be 
as much. Who knows? So it, it especially if it were uh, you know a few pallets that if they start to know that we could handle that, um, we can divert a lot more waste from the landfill, which is important. So I, I think that's definitely something that's on the horizon, and, and all composters probably should look at, and we all should kind of learn how we could manage that and the best management practices you can do to make sure that that's um, done, you know, sustainably um, and consciously of the environment um, while still diverting a lot of waste from the landfill. Obviously there was still the packaging that we would have had to trash, but that we yeah. would have diverted a lot of wastes, which would have been. Yeah. Good. I would have probably hauled most of that back to our warehouse dumpsters, but yeah, yeah that's another logistical challenge. As you start to take on more food scraps, you realize very quickly that you need a better composting system to process the material. This is why I highly recommend the aerated static pile micro bin designed and made easy by O2 Compost. In 60 days, I have finished compost without putting in the labor of turning the pile. The piles heat up to over 140 degrees, killing pathogens, weed seeds, and fly larvae, making the end product safe to use in the garden. With 32 plus years of experience in the compost industry, Peter Moon, owner of O2 Compost, is a leading expert in the field of ASP composting. I encourage you to set up a free half an hour consultation with Peter Moon by going to his website www.o2compost.com. That's the letter O, the number 2, compost.com. If you mention that you heard about O2 Compost on this podcast, you'll receive a 10% discount on the purchase of the microbin compost training program. So let me talk about the composting process. I'll explain, you know, our side of it, and then I'll pass the baton to you so you can kind of explain the rest of the process. But, you know, a few times a week, we make the, the drive down uh, the 408 and we uh, arrive to your site, the gates always open. It's a nice road, even during this wet season, because that's another issue. Like our old composting site, it would rain, you know, consistently during this time of year. And there's potholes, there's puddles, your truck, there would be the risk of your truck getting stuck, but no, not at fruit farms, which is awesome. So we come in and, you know, you have a, a pancake of wood chips ready for us. And, you know, the, once we dump on that, that's really there to kind of absorb all the juices. And um, and then, yeah, what happens after that to get that black gold? So um, we have a giant loader. So um once, yeah, like one of those you see at the landfill. It's yeah, it's yeah, small. it's a landfill size loader. Uh when we were digging uh, our ag ponds, we needed some bigger equipment. And we might eventually have to scale down and, and go with the smaller loader. But right now we have this massive beast of a loader. Uh it's you know, 42,000 pound, 21 ton big, big machine. Uh feels like driving a semi almost uh, <laughs> that has a giant metal bucket in front of it so that's cool how but big is the bucket how many yards i believe it's four yard bucket wow that's it's big. big it's yeah. a it's a good it's a good size loader for sure um so we we uh take that loader uh we kind of run into the the pile and and mix everything up when we get a, a new load of 
compost um, it will you know reveal some of the bags and some of the stuff we then get more mulch and cover on top of it but uh, whenever we get a new load we try to mix it in a little bit um, with some of the other stuff to make it a little more homogeneous and then also uh, to turn the pile uh, more often so when we're getting food scraps in regularly it's easier to just turn it all up um, and then put more mulch on top of it it'll start steaming and all that kind of stuff we uh, have the rio temp uh, gauge to check the temperature and whatnot so that's the active stage what do you do after you know you've noticed that it's heated up and like what's the next stage for you so we have uh right now probably like four or five piles so we we set up a, a uh we'll keep it in the active stage and kind of keep putting more scraps in for a few weeks um then once that pile gets large enough kind of let that sit there uh once it's past the active stage and start a new curing pile and then we start a, a new active pile um, so we have several curing piles uh, every few weeks. I'll go and turn them and just make sure it's looking good, um, that everything looks like it's decomposing right. And then I'll let it sit for a few months. Um, so I, I think our the first pile we did, we were having difficulty getting arborists to come out here and they had some like larger tree debris. So we ended up with some larger uh, tree debris than we would like. So I've been cycling that back into active piles um, that does provide you know more air pockets and better aeration which heats the piles up but yeah that unfortunately since you don't have a screener um, that is going to take forever to break down um, yeah 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 i know a larger tree debris can take years uh, i definitely would uh, like to get a screen at some point but we haven't uh, we, we've been using it on, on our own product like we talked about and so for our uses I don't really care if there's a big stick I, I'll put it around it for tree it's not going to hurt it in any way uh, and, and we have enough land that it, it doesn't really matter if I throw some of that larger tree debris around stuff so yeah it's um, more like a black like a dark mulch compost with uh you know with some uh wood chip bigger wood chips or tree debris in it when yeah. we take it back to our warehouse, we actually uh, spend the time to like pick out the bigger pieces of sticks and wood chips so that it resembles like a finer compost. But we haven't yeah. received any complaint from our subscribers. It, even it, there's a couple wood chips, there's bugs, you know, that's to be uh, expected. That, yeah, that, that, that's, that's what you want. I mean, yeah. I, I definitely want to see you know the the soils alive um i when i i was trying to sell it like on an individual basis to people who are coming into our nursery um and i'll just screen it with a five gallon bucket and like a little prospector pan that goes on top of the bucket and it just sifts it down to half inch um so i did that for for the people that i'm selling it to um, you know, on a, a small basis, if I'm selling a dump truck load or a, a truck load, I'm not screening it because, you know, I don't have the, the screen to do that at this point. Because mm -hmm. like we said, we're not currently like a commercial processor. We're, we're uh, you know, just a farm. But uh, at the point that we 
grow enough that we do become that commercial side. We would like to get a screen and then we can get some of that stuff out and then it, it changes the process a little bit. Um, but for right now, that's our kind of basic process. I'll, I'll take the unscreened stuff, put it around my own trees. Um, if anyone wants to buy a large volume, that's what they would get. Um, and then everyone who's buying in smaller volumes, obviously paying a higher premium, they can get it screened to, to half an inch essentially. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've found that the soil does really well and um, you know this, but everyone else that uh, we did a soil test at the University of Florida to see kind of some of the things um, about our compost and uh, yeah, still have some research go, to do on how to. Could you go over that uh, sample test? Cause that's super exciting. We've in our two and a half years, we've never actually sent our, our compost to a laboratory, but we're interested to see like what the feedstock of wood chips mix with our pretty homogeneous food waste, what uh, what that yields as far as a test result. Yeah, so um, our plan was to basically get these soil tests done um, for each curing pile. So we'd do one or two samples from each pile just to make sure that it fits in line with what we need um, for our own property. And then again, if we're selling it, I would also like to kind of have an idea of some of the numbers on it. Um, so our pH was definitely on the higher side. Uh, it's uh, normal. Um, it was about 7.5, if I recall, right? Yeah, close to yeah. 7.5. Uh, a lot of the plants I grow want uh, five and a half to six and a half so i would have to do things to to lower the ph on that um and we're still not sure like how like what caused that effect we're not sure if it was just yeah so i do know um so when i i talked to a representative um, at the local extension office in orange county she was explaining that compost typically does raise pH in soil. So it is, normally is a higher pH just naturally. She said that's particularly true when there, uh, there's like chicken shavings and things like that, that are high in nitrogen that will raise the pH. Um, obviously we don't have chicken shavings and stuff in there, but that is just, just a point that she made. So there's definitely ways that compost will raise the pH. Um, I don't think that it's, if it were higher than seven and a half, I'd probably be semi-concerned about it, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, seven and a half is kind of normal. Um, so I know that a lot of native soils, I have to do pH uh, amendments anyways um, in Florida. So it's not a huge deal for me. Um, and I haven't noticed anything that I've applied it to caring about that at all. So even, um, Chipota kaba is like is like blueberries. They want uh, super acidic soil, and I've been growing them with uh, applying the compost and then a mulch on top of it, and they have more new growth than I've ever seen on them before. They're super slow growing plants. Um, hey, that's and they've the grown best, incredibly well. That's the best. Yeah. right there is like look at the plants, see how they're reacting, and if their leaves are yellowing or browning. No, that's not a good sign for the compost, but if there's new growth and the leaves are, you know, that, that green color, I mean, that, that right there says it's working, it's doing the trick. How, yeah. how, how was like the nitrogen, phosphorus or? So, um, an, uh, another thing the test measures for is electro, 
electrical conductivity and she said that's one of the biggest indicators on you know whether plants will do well and so is yeah it basically is what that's like the salt content and it basically says like that's what makes the nutrients in the compost available to the plant roots so yeah what level did we have in our compost so, so she said two to three is like perfect. That's what you want. That's the optimal range. Um, and this was 2.59. So we're uh, right in the middle. So perfect. So she said that that's uh, 100% what you want. And that she was very impressed that uh, with compost, just with food scraps and uh, tree debris, that that was uh, such a perfect number for that. She was uh, actually like that. We should definitely be really happy with that. Um, the nitrogen level, she said that it's very, very difficult to test nitrogen because it changes forms constantly. She said that uh, sometimes when you get nitrogen levels on a test like this, that your best indicator is uh, applying it to plants and seeing if it gets new growth. So um, if a tree is growing new green leaves, that's nitrogen. So um, if the compost was low in nitrogen, you, I wouldn't be seeing all this new growth on everything. So it definitely uh, has good enough nitrogen, even though the nitrogen reading looks a little low on the, the sample itself. So she said that it's less indicative of the nitrogen level than, you know, obviously studying it on the plant itself. Right. Um, the, uh, I have to believe we have pretty high nitrogen in our compost, you know, relative to other maybe soil amendments because, um, you know, we American diets are pretty heavy in meat. Uh, one of our biggest clients is a barbecue in town with plenty of meat scraps. Um, and then, you know, there it's just like a, it's pretty um, a good mixture of food waste. So if I had to guess, I mean, I'm no soil scientist, but if I had to guess, it would be uh, like, it wouldn't be low in nitrogen, at least. Yeah. And like I said, from my um, just, you know, kind of boots on the ground uh, approach of just checking what the plants are doing, all the plants I've applied it to uh, seem to be faring better than ones that I didn't apply it to. So that's typically uh, a good sign. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So I've, I've found that everything that I've applied and to. I have, things- sorry. It's like, uh, it's like when your, your kid hits a home run in their little league game. I'm so proud to hear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah it, I, I was excited when, when I got, uh, started using that perch bass, even though, like I said, I, there's, bigger uh tree debris in that batch than any of the other ones so that the second one is like almost done curing um and so when i get into that pile i think there's going to be a lot less issues um we have enough in that pile and the, the next upcoming pile that's why i'm mixing kind of the some of the tree debris in the current pile and i'll just kind of mix that pile into the next one forever probably um until I don't see any true de- big true debris, even if it takes years, uh, or until I get a screen, whatever, whatever comes first. Um, but every other reading on here was pretty decent. So uh, the phosphorus was a little low reading. 
um, and that pushes flowering and fruiting. So that's going to matter more for someone like me that's growing edible plants. And so, that's um, actually how like artificial fertilizer is made with the phosphorus mines here in Florida, correct? Yeah, so she said that phosphorus is fairly available in the soil. Uh, it's just that it's not available to the plants. So you have to kind of get that to open up. Um, so having some of those microorganisms and whatnot uh, can open those resources up to plants. Um, there's also where, like I intercrop legumes and a lot of my stuff and they fix nitrogen in the soil. So like I don't even need as much nitrogen as I would otherwise without even using chemical fertilizers just because those plants roots send nitrogen out in the soil around them. Um, and so other plants next to it can benefit from that. So uh, that, that's things like beans and peas. So I use pigeon peas and ice cream bean are two of the big ones that I use on our farm. Um, but those fix the nitrogen in the soil. So anything planted near that are going to do better. Um, phosphorus is kind of the same way. Like you can, uh, can't really plant other plants that do that, but uh, getting some of those soil uh, organisms going can open resources that are already there. So our soil has those resources in it. It's just not widely available to plants. So if you can open that avenue where they are widely available to plants, it's already there. Um, the the K reading was a high reading, but um, all the micronutrients is that um, potassium. Right? Yeah, the so potassium uh, was was a higher reading, but um, she said that. Your big issue would be high readings on phosphorus or nitrogen because those can pollute waterways and whatnot. So if you have too much and you over apply nitrogen or phosphorus, then you can uh, end up polluting because if the resources have nowhere to go, they which is a big problem water. here in Florida with the red tide, we call it. Uh, yeah. It's basically all the chemical fertilizers people use on their lawns gets washed off through the waterways. And it's leading to like tons of sea life, you know, just dying because they it it grows algae, algae blooms, and then it takes away that available oxygen in in the you know coast of Tampa or all along the coast on the Gulf side and the Atlantic side. So it's a huge problem, and uh, you know we don't want to be doing that with our compost. We want to be retaining water in our compost because it's, you know, airy and fluffy. So that's a huge plus. That's why you see compost socks uh, along like sewerways, along construction sites. It's there to kind of act as a biofiltration. But also, you know, we, we just want to have like a well-balanced product with not uh, overly filled with nitrogen or phosphorus. So. Yeah, exactly. It, you uh, over apply and, and, and part of it is, uh, is a big part of it is user error, right? Like if I apply the right amount of compost um, and right amount of the nutrients, then it won't be an issue. But if I go and throw eight feet of compost on all of my plants, then maybe I would have an issue with over applying where they can't use that. Um, so that that's the big thing is teaching people and getting them to understand what these nutrients are. And I mean, even farmers to myself, I am not a soil scientist. I went to school for marketing, like we said, so I wasn't as familiar with this stuff until I spoke with the extension agent about 
what the readings mean and how I can uh, use amendments uh, properly so that I'm not uh, polluting with excess nitrogen or phosphorus. Even going the organic and natural route, you can, even though it's it's less uh, on that on this side than it is you know on chemical fertilizers. There's still a possibility of polluting, and we don't want to do that, obviously. Um, and so, trying to do that as ethically and environmentally conscious as possible. Uh, a lot of that involves us making sure that we do soil samples like this and check uh, how much nitrogen we're applying to all of our plants on our farm and teach other people to do the same on, on their properties. Um, and then also, you know, not over applying. If we realize that we have nit enough nitrogen with this compost, I don't need to add anything else that has nitrogen. So, right. Okay, cool. Um, so the, the K, the potassium was like a little low, but kind of in that uh, middle range. That, that one was a little higher, actually. Oh, little um, higher. And then we had a, a few other that were low. So so the K rating was high. The P was a little low. Um, so I have to figure out, for, for my purposes, the P is going to matter a little bit. I need the phosphorus to get my plants to set fruit. Um, I haven't had any real issues with that, so there must be something in some of the other amendments I use that that makes that work. But um, I want to see if I can get the compost to kind of be like an all-in-one amendment. So, um, and yeah, when my, you talk uh, about like large-scale composting facilities like Cedar Grove outside of Seattle or Atlas Organics, who are selling different products uh, with you know maybe a food waste compost as kind of like the foundational soil amendment, they're, they're mixing it with different stuff. Like I know you can mix it with like granite dust or, you know, Atlantic sea kelp, um, you know, you worm castings to, to make vermicompost. So like you can take this compost as kind of like the base and then if you do the adequate research, if you like learn the soil science, science uh, you can, you know, be adding uh, different uh, minerals and nutrients to like get what you want and maybe more better balance uh, the results. So yeah, that's... Uh, that's really exciting though, Andrew. And I know there are a couple other um, minerals like calcium and uh, what was the other one there? Uh, Mg and Ca are the other magnesium um, and calcium. Yeah. Um, magnesium was a good reading. Uh, I didn't write down any notes on the calcium reading, so it's probably um, in line. Uh, okay. But yeah. I, I feel like um, the having the results helps a lot with me understanding uh, what we need to do and what we would need to mix, like you said. So uh, I need to research more about the mixes and what I could do that would uh, add more phosphorus without adding too much nitrogen or any other uh, macronutrient that could, you know, be harmful. Um, so that's the, the I guess the the big thing uh, when you start is. Uh, you learn along the way. And so one of the things that we're going to have to start learning now as we develop to, you know, maybe transition to be a commercial uh, processor at some point would be um, 
when we're getting to more on the uh, commercial side, if we develop into that avenue or uh, want to learn more about commercial mixes, applying you know different mixes for different plants and understanding how the, the chemical levels will matter for different plantings is something that's going to be important. So our goal is going to be to try to utilize uh, what we've learned from this soil sample test uh, to learn more about the mixes and what we can do to, to change some of these readings a little bit and for what we're growing. And then at some point, if we get to the commercial level, uh, understanding what we can add to work for, you know, growing ornamentals or other plants that might not be what we're currently interested in. So my interest right now would be how do I get the phosphorus to be a little bit higher for my plants since I'm growing entirely edibles and things that I want to fruit um, without adding too much nitrogen or causing any pollutions where, where we add too much. Um, so doing it as you know well as possible to work perfectly as a, a mix um, for what we're, we're using. So uh, I'm going to probably have to learn how, how to get the mix right. And so what, what we can add to, to add to that phosphorus writing is something that's what I'm going to be researching now. Okay, cool. I mean, I love the fact that you pay attention to the details of this. And honestly, that's why I love, you know, working with you, uh, my, my coworker and like, she, uh, lead of operations with O-Town, Aaron. She's like, I, I love Andrew. <laughs> so she uh, is like all fangirl just because you, you know, you're so meticulous with the details and it's a huge 180 considering our last composting partner. Um, so, you know, keep it up. And, you know, I wanted to ask before we end this conversation, like you accept BPI compostable bags um, and that doesn't seem to be a problem. They just disappear in the compost. We don't, O-Town Compost, we don't accept like any BPI serviceware that resembles plastic. We do take fiber-based uh, serviceware, but have you noticed like how's contamination been um, um perspective very little so so we'll we'll occasionally you know get fruit stickers and things like that a little contamination um every once in a while like uh faux compostable spoon or something that that's semi-plastic looking um that obviously would potentially compost over time but not in a short time period so that stuff kind of remains um but for the most part um we don't have anything. I, I shovel the stuff onto my plants and we'll check and see if there's anything I notice, like a food sticker, I can throw it out. But um, for the most part, I haven't had any real issues. Um, the bags, like you said, I, at first you'll notice them. Like uh, if I go into the pile, uh, the well, even starting the curing phase, some of that will remain a little bit. You'll still see remnants of it. And then once it's uh, a few months and that stuff's all gone and you don't notice it at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, we just started a new incentive program for our drivers to make sure that they're lifting lids, but you know, um, we have each month, we have a contamination of the month. This month it's wipes and dryer sheets. 
if they lift the lid and catch the contamination in the month, they get a dollar per flag of that contamination. And if they catch any contamination, um, except for fruit stickers, you know, that is kind of hard to control. And we don't want to, you know, that's just, we don't want to be known as like the compost Nazis. I feel like we uh, want to keep a kind of positive uh, correspondence going with our subscribers. But if they catch anything else, that's 50 cents. So like, if you're really uh, kind of looking for this contamination as a driver, you can definitely, you know, once a week pay for your lunch or something. So I'm hoping um, it, it keeps the contamination low. And obviously, if you do notice that it's becoming a significant problem, like always feel free to reach out and talk to us. So that's important uh, with the kind of collector processor relationship is just staying in close communication. So communications, everything. So obviously our big uh, thing with working with you guys is that you guys always communicate and when your drivers come out, you guys let us know so that I can make sure that the lids, uh, that all the loads get covered with mulch and nothing stays out there. Like we talked about since we're a little more rural that we have all kinds of animals. Uh, and so making sure that it gets uh, settled kind of fairly immediately so that nothing gets into it is important for us. And we always have that communication. We know when you guys can come drop loads at the facility. And since this isn't our, if we're a commercial facility and we're open all the time, that might be a little different where we we're just accepting people. But since we're a smaller farm, I'm doing a bunch of other things. So it's important yeah. to have that communication. It's uh, appreciated, and I think yeah. that's something that other uh, collectors will have to work with and understand when they're working with processors is to make sure that uh, you communicate and let them know when, when things are happening. And you guys have also been really good about asking if we accept certain things um, to see if you can collect new things that you've not been able to process before and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um... It's not like I just show up with 30 pallets of meat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's allowed both of our business to kind of thrive and grow. So it's been great uh, working with you. And um, yeah, ne next week we'll probably be bringing you a couple loads, even though it's the Ever Oak week. But um, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Have a good weekend. Take care. Bye-bye. If you enjoy the Community Composting Podcast and want to support future episodes, please follow the link in the episode show notes to give a small monthly reoccurring donation, even if it's $5-$10 a month. We'll continue to come out with killer content to keep the grassroots movement rolling.